Ladies and gentlemen, welcome back to another episode of Trade Talk. We are a few days away from the 2020 presidential election and markets have been bleeding. Reference my uh, August 30th podcast that spoke about if uh, the Fed does this, short everything. I like to pat myself on the back and give myself golf claps on that because that is a very forward projection that was very bold to make, risky to make. Actually, I wish that um, I would have bought my insurance protection as of the 30th, but I didn't buy it until a few days after that. Either way, I was right. Um, and that's one of the main, that's not one of the main reasons, but one of the reasons that this podcast is done. It's to, uh, it's to keep myself sharp, uh, let the clients know what we're buying, what we're investing in, and to also make people uh, aware of I guess how, how a fund would think about something, uh, you know, like if you're thinking about general markets or uh, an overall thesis. I get asked a lot and a lot of people ask me like, oh, what's a good, you know, what stock to buy? What's this? What's that? And it doesn't work that way. I always try to tell them. I always reply back, what's your thesis? Why I say that is because this episode is going to talk about monetary policy three. Uh, also known as M3. There's M1, M2, M3. Um, it is not that these things are set in stone. However, these things are uh, very relevant in the current conditions of the economy. And by the time I get to the end of this episode, you will be blown away because I will reference something that gives you even more insight on why a thesis makes sense. So let's begin, shall we? So the thesis of the episode is this. It is my assumption going forward that universal basic income will be a mandatory thing. I know I've said that before. And again, I want to emphasize to people that it's not me regurgitating the same things in, in, the, in different episodes. I know most people like it probably very linear, like, hey, we're buying this. We don't buy based off of just a chart. We buy based off of a thesis then lead into a chart of technicals, then look at the financials. If, the fi- if we like the financials to match the technicals, then we buy. With that said, we have to add one more layer these days, which is the political. Okay? So with that said, everything starts from a macro level, then it gets into a micro level. That is why we've been talking more macro. We are in a very, uh, we are at a, at a point of the cycle where we are uh, in the politics of the economy. So it's a very macro view, drilling down into your micro view. And it is for that reason I'm able to know you get your discounts in the third quarter to collect your big profits in the fourth quarter. So many people have also told me they're finding those discounts. I know you're finding those discounts because they were there. So on to this episode. I don't want to make things too long. So are we in M3? That's kind of the idea of what we're talking about in this episode. And let me define to you M3. M3 is uh, the third stage of monetary policy in which you've already done everything you could do with lowering interest rates, which, which is M1. Then quantitative easing, which is M2. And M3 goes to the fiscal portion of um, 
monetary policy and how money is directly given to investors and savers or borrowers and spenders. I know that sounds odd, but you will get the point as I move forward. But before I move forward, and I want to make sure you understand this slowly and easily. Again, M3 is where you take this liquidity of printing money and you give it to either investors and uh, savers. Okay, the investors are the people who buy assets. Savers are the people who can take the money and just keep it in the bank. Obviously, you know that. Or borrowers and spenders. Borrowers take the money, go buy something. Spenders take the money. Uh, borrowers take the money, buy, you know, buy a house, something of that nature. They finance something. Spenders take the money and spend it on frivolous things, clothing, consumer goods, etc. So let's begin, right? So what you're seeing right now in the economy is that interest rates are as low as they're going to go. We've talked about that. Most people should understand that. What the government is relying on and all central banks are relying on is quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is still allowing an upswing in markets, which is uh, giving central banks some steam to make markets pop. Right now, you're not seeing any of, the, any of those pops in the market, hence why you've seen uh, roughly what? Almost 2,000 points on the Dow, on the downside, anywhere from 1,700 to 2,000 points as of today, uh, October 30th. And you're seeing that because, like I said before, if there's no liquidity in the markets, you'll see the markets reprice. But you know that we're going to get liquidity. But here's the issue. As I was saying in my prior episode, Senator Mitch McConnell saying that he doesn't think we get a stimulus bill until uh, February. Aha. Is that where I got it? No, that's not where I got it. Uh, I didn't get it from Mitch McConnell. I got it from the fact that If you get a Biden presidency, which I think that's what we're going to get, and I'll expound on that furthermore into this episode. If you get a Biden presidency, you're going to run into a particular situation where you can't pass that bill immediately. You're going to have to wait for everything to change hands. It's going to be even more reason for the Democrats not to agree to anything that the Republicans want because they're going to get their way in a few months. So don't hold your breath. I think you see you see a situation happen in um, in February, and you see maybe a Band-Aid or some patching that might happen to the markets, but Central Bank and um, Democrats as a whole, they probably wouldn't mind the markets repricing themselves a little bit anyway, get some deplete, uh, put some de- deflation into the markets as they run up very aggressively. Remember, it's a it's a Trump thing to have a very aggressive market run and and like it and support it. It's not really a Democratic thing. They don't care. So. As you see, we have uh, the QE uh, QE kind of on its last legs, um, we would have to see. That. The next step. Is the printing to direct it. To consumers. So how have we been doing that? You already know we've been doing that through SBA lending, through um, Paycheck Protection Program, through stimulus checks. All right. 
So even though it may sound like this is being regurgitated, what you're really coming to understand is that there is actually a hardcore fundamental reason you're going to have to give continuous universal basic income. That's what I'm trying to say in this. And why is that? Is because you have to give people incentive to spend money. M3, more than anything, has more to do with uh, borrowers and spenders and you giving them incentives to spend. As I've, as I've mentioned before in Korea, this is a, a system that has worked where they only allow a person who gets universal basic income to spend it within a province, almost like within a particular county or city to boost the economy in that county or city. And each place in the country, they do that and then they track it and they boost up uh, the economic strength that way. Now, you're saying to yourself, oh, not you're saying to yourself, I'm saying to myself, okay, I see that with M3. And I say, okay, well, how does that exactly work from a mechanical standpoint? I would be caring about how it works from a mechanical standpoint because the mechanicals are what I'm speaking about from going from a macro to a micro view. So basically, it's the central banks are going to buy bonds and uh, investors uh, or like the savers are going to make their cash off of those bonds, right? You have a particular scenario where right now bonds are paying what? A 2% yield while cash is paying 0%. And equities are yielding, uh, they're yielding over, over what, like 7 8% currently? Well, there's a key thing that a lot of people have to understand that Though you can make more money having, uh, sorry, not, not though you can make more money, excuse me, let me gather my thought. I, I had this written down, so let me rephrase it. Uh, though you can have price changes in markets, especially where a lot of people say buy assets, buy assets, buy assets, and I agree with you, but with the way things are structured, you're running into a particular scenario where price changes are worth more than yield. And what this really is saying is that the fact that a price change from having, let's say, a 2% bond yield, 0% uh, return on your money in cash, and equities yielding like 8 plus percent, one repricing, which just happened this past week, and I have to quote the time, October 20th, uh, 2020, one repricing wipes away all the yield that you made. This matters. You have investors and savers looking to put that cash out because you're getting quantitative easing and they're getting more money pumped into their assets. However, they're going to reach a point where they're going to start to say that Damn, every time this thing reprices or any time the government doesn't follow through or there's political gridlock, I lose money. So my cash begins to be safer. I know you'd say like, what? That doesn't even make any sense. No, it makes a lot of sense. That's where institutions start pulling money. You can't look at it from the simplistic sense of one plus one equals two. Not because one plus one doesn't equal two, but because you don't understand or most people don't understand 
what institutions are thinking. And institutions are generally thinking, well, what is my risk? Or what's the risk premium for me to put my money up? That's what you're not thinking. There's a thing called arbitrage that most people don't understand. Arbitrage is what has happened forever when it comes to markets having uh, a divergence to them. And our markets do have a current divergence. Interest rates yield zero. Uh, Treasury bonds are yielding a two. Cash yields a zero. The uh, equity markets yield an eight plus. Okay, you see all these numbers. There are disparities, right? Think about it this way. When you have these disparities, it's also very cheap to borrow money to buy assets. Again, going back to uh, investors and savers. However, if you, get a, if you consistently get a repricing of your markets due to inconsistency by, uh, by government management or mismanagement of what's going on in the economy, it makes it hard to know, not, not hard to know, but hard for you to feel comfortable with what your assets are. So let me play devil's advocate with people saying like, you know, what does that matter? I'm getting this money. I got it for cheap. And this is what I'm going to do with it. Well, I'll show you where it matters. Look at corporations. They get the same access to the money that you an individual is thinking I can make a killing on, but yet they don't choose to spend it. They choose to save it. Some people say, oh, they're paying bonuses with it. Yeah, they could pay some bonuses with it, but they're still choosing to save it. And the reason they're choosing to save is because they are under the same extrapolated forward-looking measure. And this is what they say about smart money and institutions. Because they know a repricing event will happen. This is why you can see people become undercapitalized when markets get hot, valuations get overvalued, and you get washed away. But in M3, this is why you come back to this and you say, oh, this is why the borrowers and the spenders become the key catalysts to make it work. So you have a situation where you're going to make the risk high. And the only way to calm that risk, and I'm talking about the risk of putting your money up for investors and savers is to get borrowers and spenders to spend more. What's the incentive? You give them any incentive. Because the longer that the markets don't allow borrowers and spenders to be able to buy at will, you will get lenders tightening their want to borrow. It's just like now where everyone is like, oh, the housing market's on fire. Yes, it is on fire. It's not like it's not on fire. Uh, but when it's really going to catch fire and you're really going to make your money is when they let more people borrow and spend freely. And you know that this is going to happen because you're running into a situation of where there's no yields. Uh, yields being, again, that you can't buy any bonds unless you pay a high-risk premium to buy them, i.e., my last episode where I'm speaking about AMC and these other companies that are going bankrupt, they're going to issue bonds that are going to pay you a bunch of yield, like 10% plus, and you're going to buy them, or the average person is going to buy them because they're going to say, I, I want to make a lot of money. 
um, because I want to invest. No different than when people want to buy Hertz and JCPenney that are sitting in bankruptcy. I'm willing to risk to buy this because everything else is so overvalued. I can't buy tech. I'm not paying a hundred or at one point uh, five hundred dollars for Apple and then two thousand dollars for um, for Tesla. Examples like that. You see how they all work in tandem? I'm sure you do at this point. So you say to yourself, okay, I got a little bit of better understanding of M3. Uh, So how does this kind of play in the broad market of everything? Well, there's a psychology to how it plays in the broad market. When you see this kind of fiscal situation... Um, or this fiscal policy, excuse me, that situation, fiscal policy, you'll start to say to yourself, hmm, what is the psychology uh, going on in, in the overall market? People are going to start saying, well, the amount, the amount of risk that is sitting out there and we are running into kind of like a currency price war, and you'll say, how do you jump to a currency price war? So follow me. You have the treasuries yielding nothing, and, you're, and this is a global sort of situation. It starts from a pandemic, and it's turning systematic. The systematic part is coming in because you have to supply universal basic income to everyone because you've inflated pricing, and you need to find a way to try to deleverage your currency. You can't deleverage your current... Uh, why you have to deleverage your currency is because you've overprinted. How do you end up deleveraging? Like I said, you got to put money in the consumer's hands so they can spend right? And while you're trying to do that, you're going to end up in a currency war. Why would you end up in a currency war? Because when people borrow, they tend to borrow in your currency, or at least the global reserve currency. Reference my old episode that talks about the global reserve currency game theory, right? So so you're in that particular sort of situation, and you now have where you have to manipulate currencies to be able to pay back these inflated values of debt. But you have a problem. Once you start doing this, things are going to unpeg. What I mean by unpeg is that you go back against the Hong Kong dollar trade and why that why people feel that that peg is going to break. This is why. We're, we're, we're right back into it again. This whole episode, this whole thesis, this whole year is revolving around these concepts, the Forex markets are going to start becoming really, uh, I'd say they're going to come really volatile. They're going to become really volatile because you're going to have all these assets that are going to be overpriced and they need to price each other by returning what was borrowed in uh, in the currency in which they borrowed it. The pairings are going to uh, become more expensive and they're going to have, uh, I don't want to call it a decoupling, but they're definitely going to have a divergence in some way. I think decoupling is too aggressive. I don't think we're far enough to get to a decoupling. And while we're trying to get to a decoupling, I think you'll just, people will just unpeg those currencies from each other. Um, you'll see that uh, no interest rate drop in, in currency pairs will make the the movement's bigger, meaning you have no interest rates. When you see that you get price changes in uh, in currency pairs, you're going to see that they're going to be larger. 
when you get, uh, let's say, a change, whatever the change of value is for the day, for the week, for the month, it's going to be larger than you used to see it before. That will play a huge psychological game on the overall, um, on the overall markets, hence global reserve game theory. Uh, the second part to that, I would say, is that um, okay. So now you have an idea of M three and what it is and how it it plays into our markets. So how does this tie into the presidential election and what is my, my guesstimate of things? I know in the beginning I said that I think that it will be a Democratic win. And if you recall in the prior episodes, you know, the Republicans want people to get the money directly. And uh, the Democrats want more government spending. The traditional way that the, that. M3 would normally go is that it would go to the um, investors and savers. It cannot do that, though. This will, that will not work. You know, you're running out of ammunition. You can't continuously do QE forever, even though they said that they can. But remember, it requires more printing, which brings more assets, uh, which increases the value of assets. Ah, okay. But here's the thing. And it's just like I said prior. The reality is people need the money, right? People need the hardcore money in their pocket. So you know that it's going to go to spenders. They don't have a choice. UBI forever, like I said. And businesses need less people. That's that reality. They don't, they don't need as many people. They're not taking as much office space. People are working from home, thereby needing a few less people can have one person doing more jobs and you already have a strong push for automation. Ah, so with that being said, I think the Democrats will get what they want and they'll come into power. I think that you will continue to get UBI, as I've said before, but the Democrats will rue the day of putting all this money into government programs when a lot of it is going to have to go into individual people's hands. I think it will be this this particular scenario that will cause our next great recession. Again, I keep repeating this. This recession was more so a public health scare and crisis this UBI problem with M3, with quantitative easing, with currency decoupling and, and devaluation will be what our next great recession is. And as I take that macro view, I now know how to start digging and looking for where the position is. And when I find that position, I think that will be the great trade of my life. I cannot say 100% for sure for this reason. A lot of the thoughts of this thesis come from Ray Dalio. And do you know when Ray Dalio came up with this and kind of came to this conclusion? We're in 2020. 
It was theorized in 2016. That's how far ahead people are looking. That's how far ahead successful funds are looking. But this will be it. This is where the next Great Recession happens. Governments are in a quandary, even if they're not telling you they are in a quandary. They are in a quandary. And getting out of this situation is something that you can't do in this economic cycle. You can't. Again, UBI is here. It's not going anywhere. The only way it goes anywhere, like I said in the last episode, is if you have budget surpluses. And from my anticipation that you get a a Democratic president, we're not about to have a budget surplus. I, like I said before, I was looking forward to the markets just bleeding just because I wanted to see what the chaos was and how it looked. And I'm looking forward to... The second quarter of 2020, with anticipation for a brutal third quarter or summer of 2020, I don't think any sort of recession kicks in at that time because we are way too early in the cycle. We've got quite a few more quantitative easing and uh, checks going out before we get there. I think we don't see it until... And, I, and I'll fine-tune this, this hypothesis, but I think we don't see it till about 2024 or 2023. Again, leading right into the next election. With it to be very strong uh, recessionary situation in 2025. Similar to 2008, not because I'm basing it off of 2008, but... It tends to happen where it rolls over at after a presidency or after some sort of policy change um, where it starts in, you know, late 2023 or mid 2024 and then really rolls over and hits you in 2025. I think that's where our next actual systematic recession comes into play. The 2020s will have their real recessionary issue caused by inflation, but not that hyperinflation nonsense, because like I've told you guys before, central, central bank, the central bank in the, in the United States have already, has already figured out how to keep rates low. Their, their problem is how to get things to inflate, but it will be forced to inflate. Um, and they've also figured out how to make their stock market grow while keeping interest rates moderate. So how it plays out over the next few years will be interesting. But this is where the bones are buried. It's buried within this hodgepodge of M3. And I will find exactly where. I know it's going to be in currency pairs, in Forex for sure. Which ones we'll find out. And I know it will be um, so, and you know, I, I, I can't say for sure, but it'll be somewhere, in my opinion, within um, the bond market. But which bonds? I would, I would highly assume it will be in, um, I would say, moderate junk, moderate junk bonds. But anyway, I'm theorizing too much and I'm letting the episode drag on. 
I like to give a very precise, direct place where these things are, like I always give when I know it. So I thank you guys for tuning in to Trade Talk. Hope you voted. The election is here. Let's see who wins. Take care. L.A. Aco, signing out.